A very warm welcome to this series of Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh for the session 2012 to 2013. Uh, my name is Stuart Brown. I'm professor of ecclesiastical history, head of the School of Divinity, and deputy convener of the Gifford Lectureships Committee. We are in the historic St. Cecilia's Hall the oldest custom-built concert hall in Scotland, and a symbol of the cultural life of the Scottish Enlightenment. Let me say a few words about the Gifford Lectures before I introduce our speaker. The Gifford Lectures were established in 1885 by a gift from Adam Lord Gifford, a justice of the Court of Session, a man of broad cultivation and learning. He endowed a series of public lectures at each of the four older Scottish universities, Edinburgh, St. Andrews, Glasgow, and Aberdeen, for, quote, promoting, advancing, teaching, and diffusing the study of natural theology in the widest sense of that term, or in other words, the knowledge of God and the foundation of ethics and morals. The first Gifford Lectures were delivered in 1888, and they very rapidly became one of the world's most important forums for philosophical inquiry and reflection. At the University of Edinburgh, our past Gifford Lectures have included such luminaries as William James, Henri Bergson, John Dewey, James G. Fraser, Albert Schweitzer, Reinhold Niebuhr, and Iris Murdoch. Our Gifford Lecture for the session 2012 to 2013 is Professor Bruno Latour, professor at the Paris Institute of Political Studies and one of the world's foremost sociologists of science. Educated at the universities of Dijon and Tours, Professor Latour began his career as a cultural anthropologist, conducting fieldwork in Africa. Turning his research interests to the nature of scientific inquiry, he served as professor in the Center for the Study of Innovation of the National College of Mining in Paris for over two decades, before moving to the Paris Institute of Political Studies in 2006. He has also held visiting professorships at the University of California, San Diego, the London School of Economics, and Harvard University. He is the author of many books and articles which have provided insightful, critical analysis of the nature of laboratory science and of the processes, scientific, political, and religious, that have shaped our contemporary world. For over three decades, he has been at the vanguard of science studies. He has taught us to view science as a process, a thing in making, which is integrally linked with politics, which is uneven in its theoretical impact, and which is enlivened by contingencies and accidents. Over the years, his work has become increasingly philosophical, 
to include broad reflections on, on whether there is a modern condition and how we know things on environmental ethics or on the connections of science, religion, and art. Among his great strengths as a thinker is to see things in their entirety and to transcend the divisions between nature and human, science and politics, and the boundaries between intellectual disciplines. His writings are like a mosaic, challenging and stimulating in their details and majestic in their larger vision. The title of his Gifford Lectures is Facing Gaia, a New Inquiry into Natural Religion. And over the course of the next two weeks, we will have six lectures. The lecture this evening is being recorded, and the video will be available online on the Gifford website very shortly. This lecture is also being streamed live around the world. No pressure. Professor Latour, it is an honor now to invite you to present the first of your Gifford Lectures on Once Out of Nature. What does it mean for a people to measure, to represent, and to compose the shape of the earth? to which they are bound. If those are the questions I wish to raise in the lecture series, there were also those that Patrick Geddes, the curator of the Edinburgh Outlook Tower, a few blocks from here, was raising when asked by his friend Élisée Reclus, the anarchist-turned-geographer, to help him sketch the giant globe he planned to build for the Paris exhibition of 1900, at a scale of 100,000. The building was so big, 200 meters, that it would have been almost as tall as the Eiffel Tower, using four times as much iron and costing as much as this thick globular shadow of a, the, Rick, Rick, sorry, the right bank of the river Seine. That reclus, in spite of his celebrity, was not able to build it speaks volumes about the difficulty of facing the earth and more generally of addressing the question of a globe inside which global structure, be they philosophical, architectural, scientific, or theological, trying to enclose it. Here is the way Geddes described his friend Enterprise. Instead of a book where it is the best, the latest, here was now the most monumental of museums, the most simple of observatories, the microcosm of a macrocosm itself. Again, the description went on, but now this was no mere scientific model in its institute, but the image and shrine and temple of the Earth Mother. And its expositor, no longer a modern professor in his chair, but an arch druid, or sacrificed with his circle of mighty stones, an Eastern mage, initiator, to cosmic mysteries. The geographic vision verse rose into the poetic, and indeed, in no mean measure, became the prophetic also. 
All the words count here, not only the connection between microcosm and macrocosm, but also the strange shift from scientific model to shrine and temple, from geography to cosmic mystery, mage, druid, from poetry to prophecy. What were all those people doing at the time with their obsession for models, temples, and priesthood? What were they trying to assemble at the end of the 19th century, long before the Anthropocene was a period, which the vastly expanded panorama exhibit and cabinets of curiosity? One thing is sure, today, as much as yesterday, the same question resonates. What is the exact shape of the Earth or more exactly, what is the Earth that is now facing us? Before we get started, I have to warn you that in the course of this week and next, I'm going to draw somewhat unorthodox lessons from three different fields, science, religion, and politics. The reason is that the three of them, as I will see, as we will see, have taken for granted a concept of nature that has rendered the interconnection increasingly difficult just at the time when ecological crisis, or more exactly ecological catastrophe, render their joint effort more necessary. First, I will approach the question of science and scientific knowledge, not from a point of view of epistemology, but from that of science studies, a field, by the way, created just right here. I will never be able to pronounce it, 34 Buklu place. I hope there is a plaque. It was made Science Studies Unit created by David Edge. Foregrounding the practice instrument and institution of science will help us to disengage the undisputed objectivity of science from its collusion with the philosophical, as we shall see also, a largely theoretical definition of nature. Second, out of necessity, the question of politics will not be limited to human but it will be expected to non-human as well, that is to all the agency that make up the cosmos inside which human do reside. Such an extension will force us to disengage political theory from its long attachment with an epistemological definition of nature. If nature known by the science is no longer the ultimate referee able to settle conflict, then politics has to take over and the common world has to be progressively Compose. Third, to be able to appeal to religious study, at least to the Christian tradition, I will have to explore why so many definitions of God are undistinguishable from those of nature and what sort of politics such collusion entails. We will have to free religious enunciation from its confusion with information and to lick it back with the power to transform and to convert. If we are not able to disengage theology from an epistemology that has ruined the distinction between nature and creation, it's in vain that the psalmist has sung, you send forth your spirit and you renew the face of the earth. The reason why I want to draw on those three different fields at once is because I wish to shift your attention from the science, politics, and religion of nature to the science and politics and religion of the Earth. The two should not be confused anymore. Earth should be understood as a historical, or better, as a geohistorical adventure, a term I will propose so as to absorb what it means to live at the epoch of the Anthropocene. 
to clearly disengage the question of a historical earth from that of Nietzsche, I will invoke the controversial figure of Gaia, borrowing James Lovelock's term for an entity that is composed of multiple reciprocally linked but ungoverned self-advancing processes. Far from being the sphere that at last all on his shoulder, or the creation that St. Christopher feel when he helps the child Jesus to ford the river, or any unified and living globe, Gaia, as I will show at length, is the most secular figure of the earth ever explored by political theory. It's because it's not already unified that it should be composed, thus becoming the only entity able to mobilize in a new way science, politics, and theology. The project I will pursue in this lecture series could receive a label of political theology, an even stranger and more unusual one, because it will be a political theology of nature. To put it as starkly as possible, I would claim that those who intend to survive the coming cataclysm of climate on hope and faith, or who square off against it armed only with the result of externalized and universal knowledge, are doomed. The age of such faiths is over. I hope to show that this is by facing Gaia, that wholly secularized and earth-bound set of processes that there is a dim possibility that we should let the spirit renew the face of the earth. Let me now begin by defining the three notions that we will follow all along in this political theology of nature, demos, theos, and nomos, which are clearly visible already in this Orphic poem in honor of Gaia. I don't know how to pronounce it, oh mother of Gaia, oh of gods and men, the source endured with fertile, all destroying force, all parent bounding, whose prolific powers produce a store of beauties, fruits, and love lovers. Come, blessed goddess, listen to my prayer, and make increase of fruits thy constant care, with fertile season in thy train draw near, and with propitious mind thy suppliance here. But such an address, such a beginning, such a prayer, would look to be of a cheap irony or a futile attempt at resurrecting a cult forever long gone. This is actually here, the image of Gaia coming out. We know this for as long as anthropology has existed. No right without a collective for whom the only way to assemble truly as a group would consist in having been summoned by this spirit and in appealing to it in return. This much we know from Durkheim. But we also know that such a feedback loop connecting people assembled by their deity and assembling deities invoked by their people cannot resist too long the corroding influence of critique. This is, of course, what has happened to the immortal gods of antiquity. The last thing I want is to make you laugh at the evocation of Gaia, or believe that Gaia is merely a figure of a past, a shadow, a ghost. So I will not attempt addressing this character directly, since we don't share enough all of it here, 
of the same local culture, pertain to the same people, or go for the same rituals to be able to salute it by the name of Sanctissima Tellus. What I will explore instead in this connection between a people summoned by an entity, we put aside the word deity, or God for a moment, and this very same people sustaining this entity in return. That the circular process that will be of interest to us all along. How many ways there are to be assembled as an entity for which rites are performed that maintain these people into existence? Jan Hasman, the great Egyptologist, has reminded us that it was a tradition of the ancient city of the old world before the advent of Judaism and Christianity to establish what he called tables of translation for the names of God worshipped in many different cities and land around the Mediterranean and the Middle East. At a time of cosmopolitanism, sort of early form of globalization, those translations offered a sort of practical solution to the soft relativism with which every adept of one city cult recognize the family resemblance among the city cults of many foreigners that we were by now living in their midst. What you name Jupiter, I name it Zeus. With such a procedure in mind, I'd like to raise the following question. Is it possible to reuse this tradition of translation table for the names of God to list other entity, other cult, other people, and to detect among them different collectives, the family resemblance that remain invisible as long as we stick to our two local ethnocentric or sectarian point of view. Collective is the word I use to replace society, by the way. Of course, I'm well aware of what Hasman has so congently shown. Once the mosaic division, as he called it, is in place, those tables and the soft relativism that went with them are not only impractical, but sinful and impious. The true God becomes untranslatable by any other name, and no other cult than his cult should be maintained anywhere else. From this point on, relativism has been turned into what it is still today, for many people, a term of detestation and ostracism. But since I want to draw a relation among the different ways to associate people and entities, I'm not worried about this accusation of relativism. In spite of a radical division most local culture would like to make, I wish to render fully comparable those different ways of being assembled around an entity. At a time of yet another globalization, at the time quickly, as the time quickly approaches when many different globes will be crashing into one another, we need another table of translation. Whom do we have to invoke so as to gather us together when different people have different sky above their head, different soil under their feet, and different cities they inhabit? The way the translating table worked, according to Hassmann, was to shift attention from the proper name of the divinity to the series of features that this name summarized in the mind of their worshippers. Not Zeus, for instance, was the name, but leader of the faith, 
protector of suppliants, good god of fair winds, and of course, bearer of the lightning. The idea was that if the list of features were more or less the same, then the proper name might be taken as indifferent or at least negotiable. Your people name it that way, my folks name it this way, but we designate by those invocation the same deity carrying out the same sort of action in the world. Such a mode of translation is tantamount to shifting from names to agency. Even if we still disagree, at least we move toward a common search for what divinity actually do. Translation table for the name of God in the ancient city were clearly diplomatic negotiations. Similarly, today, if we have to go to war, and war is very likely, we want to make distinctly possible that we don't cut our throats of our name, but of our features that do make a difference between friends and enemies. One such mock fight, as you were well aware, risks pitting those who speak of various gods against those who speak of nature. I know that the first reaction will surely be to say that those two invocations are incommensurable since they designate entirely different names and concepts. If you talk about Gaia or God or Jesus or Buddha or any spirit, it is not possible that you are also talking about nature. Between the first five names and the last one, there is a chasm that no amount of negotiation should bridge. We recognize here the wedge that comes from the radical division between the false god and the true one. I should have said between, on the one hand, all the talk about gods, on the other, about reality. You cannot possibly compare those entities. Nature is not a religion. But wait, we said that we wanted to shift attention from name to agency. So before we burn each other at the stake, not very far from here, let's have a look at the list of features that you lump together with your emblem that others lump together under another concept. But nature, you might say, is not an emblem nor a concept. It's the stuff out of which and inside which we are all made. I know. But I ask you to wait, to be patient. Let's see what we all have in store. Let's call each other bluff and show our hands. Then we will decide whether or not it's worth fighting. In order to follow some of the coming stories more comfortably, I'm going to use a trick. I'm going to replace the word nature, to which we are much too habituated, with a weird exotic expression that will allow us to distance ourselves from it. What to call the entity under which the specific people are summoned? The entity that is generated in turn by their activity. So as to remain close to the etymology of the word nature, let's call this entity Owab, out of which we are all born. It's a bit bizarre at first, smacking of science fiction, but that's exactly the sort of oddity I need because later, it will help us, translation, to run more smoothly with the many other titles and invocation. For now, 
It's just convenient for foreigners to greet one another by saying, you are the people of Oab, I belong to the people of Zeus, other the people here are those of Odun. How are we going to name the group, the nation, the people assembled under the auspices of Oab? We could use the word naturalist, but it's a bit confusing. To pursue my little game, let's call it born from Oab. If you find this strange, be reminded that the venerable word human means etymologically from the soil and shares the same root, pun intended, with humus, the soil. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return to stay in the spirit of land. Now, to complete the alienation or distanciation, as Bertolt Brecht would have said, from the two common expressions of nature and naturalist, we need a third term so that we may render comparable what should apparently, in our tradition at least, not be comparable. How are we going to designate the loop that connects those born from Oab and the assembling entity out of which we are all born? If I use the word religion to designate this loop, and even if I stick to this etymology, I'm afraid the negotiation will break, break down immediately. So let's be careful here. If those who are scandalized are right, it's for the simple reason that all the words that should make up the vocabulary for the titles of the top of a translation table should be well balanced, at least neutral enough to keep the attention focused simply on the list of features, on the actant. Let me propose a vague, boring, and pouring enough term, which I'll use the word nomos, which we will see in the four, fifth and sixth lectures. Let's agree that we are going to compare different people each summoned by a different entity that defines, orders, rank, organize, compose, dispatch, in brief, distribute various sort of agency in different way. Nothing more sophisticated. If we stick to our old ethnic particularity, we would not need to devise any instrument for tolerance. But here we are, globalized affectedly, somewhat torn between trying to avoid an all-out war and pretending a complete harmony. In brief, we wish to enter into some sort of modus vivendi. Okay, let's now go to those who define themselves, those who belong to OWAB. They emphasize four important qualities of the entity they invoke. OWAB, for them, is outside, unified, inanimate, and it's working on undisputable. The difficulty begins, however, when they are asked to develop more precisely those four attributes. Let me start with the expression outside. Apparently what is meant here is something like not dependent on the wishes, whims, and fancies of the people that invoke it. OWAP is not negotiable. Fine. This is an attribute common to all the entities able to assemble a people around them. It's precisely because they are beyond that they possess the force to summon and gather. But if we dig a little further, we fall upon a strange and apparently contradictory attribute. Owab is simultaneously out and beyond, yes, but also inside the tiny networks of practice that seem necessary 
to access it and that are called scientific discipline. So every time we designate a feature of a natural world that has some sort of a property of OWAB, we are also asked to follow the path of a knowledge-producing procedure. Our sight goes simultaneously far away and close at hand, focusing on two opposite places at once, as if there was a tension between the exteriority and the interiority of this entity. And yet no one should, be, should have been surprised as this common to all entities. They have to be made, constructed, elaborated, fabricated. But the reason why in this case such bifocalism takes a strange conflicting character is that there seems to be no way for these peculiar people call them, who call themselves those born from Awab to reconcile the two. Whereas many other cultures have worked out this contradiction to the full, not a thought seems to have been invested by these very peculiar people in the necessity, necessary bifocal nature of nature. It's as if those people had to make their cosmology turn around two foci at once. One where everything is outside, not human-made, and the other where everything is inside, human-made. An unstable Copernican revolution with two suns at once and the earth alternating wildly in some demented zigzagging pattern without ever finding a center to rest. I'll come back to that Monday. An indication, surely, for those who attempt the translation of this entity into their own language, but there is something very odd about such a people. On which earth do they reside? That these people might belong to no earth at all becomes an even more intriguing possibility when the second adjective is taken into consideration. OWAB is unified and make every agency obey its universal laws. But this feature too is hard to reconcile with the bewildering multiplicity of scientific discipline. That we looked at this this way, the jungle of intertwined scientific discipline look more like a legal process with its complex casuistic of multiple codes and untangled jurisprudence than the smooth unification implied by the traditional expression of laws of nature. Of course, locally there exists some process of unification, one topic being explained, accounted for, digested, absorbed, understood by another more encompassing one. But such a process to sum up and assemble is itself always local costly, and has to be achieved through the immense effort of many organizations, paradigms, and institutions. If throughout the negotiation the acquaintance of odd people might have been surprised by two first attributes of OWAB, exteriority and unity, what should they think of a third? That OWAB deal only with inanimate agency. This is very puzzling for them. The contradiction resides in the very word employed, an agency, an actant, by definition, is what acts, what, has, what is endowed with agency. How could you render the whole word inanimate? It turned out that this is not a mystification, but a mystique, a very interesting and respectable one, to be sure, but also a very spiritual form of contradiction, a surprising form of piety. Here again, every discipline, every specialty, every laboratory, every expedition multiplies the surprising agents with which their world is made of. And yet, if we were to expect unification, the official saying is reductionism, we should prepare ourselves to read 
fewer and fewer papers, shorter and shorter, written by fewer and fewer scientists, each explaining more powerfully many more phenomena. The practice is exactly the opposite. Even if you factor in duplication, replication, and the race to publish and to perish, a calm and cold consideration of a scientific literature shows that it seriously multiplies the number of agents that has to be taken into account for any course of action to be achieved. If you now replace the technical name of each of those agents by what they do, you are not faced by the oxymoron inanimate agency, but on the contrary, by a fabulous multiplication of a potential for action. And that's, of course, what makes scientists and engineers so interesting to talk to. Until, that is, they shift to the opposite end of their contradictory form of mystique and blissfully unaware of a contradiction, begin to tell you that they, they alone, contrary to all the other people, deal only with completely inert and inanimate objects that have no agency except that the one given of them by their antecedent causes. Why are those three contradictory features not better instituted? The other parties to the parley could ask the people of OWAB. Faced with such contradiction, this is certainly that we would have worked out, the other collective would say, and the whole anthropology would show it. Why indeed? Well, because of the fourth and last attribute given to this entity, undisputability. In itself, the attribute is not remarkable. All entities able to summon their people do it through decrees that are beyond doubts and disputes. The peculiarity of this feature in this case is once again that it does not register the long and necessary procedures of discussion for which this indisputability is achieved. Matters of fact, to use the most common expression, are only the terminal result of highly complex assemblages of disputing parties reliable witnesses, peer, proof, apprentice, and master, which are in no way captured by the word fact. Isolated, left alone, cut from its networks of practice, a matter of fact is a terribly weak and too easily ignored injunction. As Austin said, a constative statement is a poorly contextualized performative statement. It gains indisputability only when carefully serviced and accompanied by its support crews. But what makes the attribution of indisputability to OWAB even stranger today is something other than the process of production of matter of fact. It's the unexpected expansion, what could almost say the leakage, of a dispute way beyond the narrow confine of specialist experts. Controversies have grown to the point where for almost every topic, a field of contention has spread out the academy and forced those involved in the slow production of undisputability, mainly laboratory scientists, to increase dramatically the number of their contributors. They have enrolled many more ordinary members of the public who in another time would have been simply been asked to study, rehearse, repeat, or dumb down the established fact, not to discuss or participate in their production evaluation or revision. This is not something that Elysee Reclus would have expected. Imagine what would happen if we were trying to recreate this model of a globe today, let's say in the heart of Beijing, or downtown Copenhagen, or Rio, 
And if we attempted to agree on what shape to give the earth and with which agencies to compose it, even though Reclus was an anarchist, he would have been horrified to be interrupted at every step when trying to lodge every plaster panel in its right location by a crowd of dissenting voice asking for more research, different protocols, and other alternative scenarios. After having looked at the four features, each of them defined also by a specific form of contradiction, let's come back to the translation table to see whether it might help us to compare different agencies' distribution. Remember that such is the banal expression, nomos, I propose for the structure. But before we can do that, we need to solve a little problem of invocation. How should we address those who call themselves born out of Owab? It's not just possible to say, ah, you are those who accept living under the auspices of an entity that is outside, unified, inanimate, undisputable, and thus undefeasible. It's impossible because the attributes that they insist on are also emphasized that Owab is inside, multiple, animated, and highly disputed. Extra care should be taken here, not to hurt the feeling of people who seem immensely sensitive to those contradictions, but also immensely devoid of ways to overcome them. It's actually because they cannot overcome the contradiction that they are so touchy, so sensitive, and in a constant state of anxiety. They are feeling so easily hurt that they tend to reach for a weapon with which to launch preventive strike against whatever smacks of relativism. To quiet them down and introduce some sort of reassurance, we should be able to address Owab respectfully in its full force, that is the two columns. You will understand that here we are not indulging in the old game of irony or deconstruction, but in the highly delicate travails of composition. I'm not sure I'm the one with enough of a healing touch. But I will propose to say that OWAB is not invoked respectfully enough when addressed in what could be called an epistemological tonality, which is on the left. Since in this case, only the four attributes are taken into account. But it is not invoked respectfully enough either when only the four contradictory attributes are underlined into what I could call a critical tone. Insisting on the four terms only would simply be irritating to the people of OWAP. It's already more polite, I would argue more respectful of this entity full power, to address in it with what could be called an anthropological tonality, by which I mean a way of talking that would list the eight features at once. But there has never been an accepted repertoire to register the two lists of contradictory features together should not be set against my attempt. Remember, the task is novel. We live in the Anthropocene. We didn't know that before. This other way of addressing OWAB might be comforted and reassuring for the people OWAB assemble. Simply compare this attribute with those of other people summoned by another entity. For instance, by one who possesses 
four attributes, except that one of them is different. This is where the translation table is supposed to work. Suppose now a people assembled by an entity, let's give it a cheap name, Gaiti, whose attributes are exteriority, unity, animation, and undisputability. Then we could easily pass the Jupiter translation quiz by comparing OWAB and Gaiti features. If they have the same attributes. If they have the same attributes, it's the same entity, save for the name. What happens if one shifts to the anthropological repertoire? That is, take the eight features of OWAB together. Then at once, the difference between OWAB and Gaiti becomes enormous. They cannot be confused anymore. Since OWAB, such is its full dignity and fantastic power, the reason why it draws upon the faithfulness of such a vast and powerful people, benefits also from the four contradictory attributes we have listed above. At such a game, gaiety is no match. Its people are stuck in an epistemological rendering that does not move an inch, the only margin of maneuvers being to decide whether the word is made of animate or inanimate agency, whether it has a purpose or not. If for, so we are going to study only the gray cases here. If, for instance, you write a moving elegy about the structure of the eye, so obviously made up by benevolent designers since no amount of chance encounters could have produced it, you certainly stage a magnificent fight with another argument in which another author, with the same readiness to pick a good fight, is happy to show that the structure of the eye is nothing more than the unintended result of small changes accumulated through generation after generation of chance encounters. Great fight indeed. Design and designer versus no design and no designer. But now I pray you shift your attention to the level below so as to detect the amount of action, of animation, of activity both arguments have developed. You will be surprised to see that the admirable structure of the eye in the first argument actually does strictly nothing more than being another fully redundant example of the benevolence of a harsh designer. An argument that has been made 4,000 times before and in the same repetitive way about everything from the admirable structure of the hand, the admirable structure of the heart, of the cat, the dog, the horse, all the way to the admirable structure of the watermelon to pick on Bernardin de Saint-Pierre. It might be beautiful and uplifting to hear that the lilies sing the glory of God, but not if the song does not vary from one creature to the next. The insistence on those creatures being designed instead of produced by chance most often does not result in their being endowed with any other agency than demonstrating once again the same creation by the same mysterious hand of the same creature. He acts, not the eye, nor the lily. To use my jargon, the creator is a mediator, the lily is a mere intermediary. In terms of actantiality, a horrible word for a beautiful thing, the net result is zero, since the amount of the animation has not increased one yota. 
What is amusing as well as puzzling for those like me who are as interested in chanting the glory of God as the objectivity of the sciences is that when you turn to the other narrative, the one that boasts of al aligning only concatenation of purely material objective agent, clever description of the most intricate detail of the eye trigger surprise and new agency. Most importantly, specific lessons are drawn from fresh material one after the other about what it is to evolve over time. And these are not the lessons you would have drawn from a lily of a watermelon. The specificity is so precise that dozens of new experimental pathways are suggested that allow the reader to imagine new forests inside new properties of the world. Plurality is vastly expanded. Now, I ask you, who celebrates better the glory of a creator? The one who draws the same conclusion apropos every single agent? Or the one who multiplies the agency with which the world could be composed? I will say the second. Even though I'm fully aware of the fact that at the end of a demonstration, spurred by his opponent, the naturalist, will most probably draw from the structure of the eye the same repetitive lesson according to which its evolution demonstrates once again beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is no design and no designer. So that the course of nature is conceived as being merely the fortune of matter in its adventure through space. To quote Whited, another Gifford lectures which was not cited in the introduction. Another triumph of reductionism. Nature, one, God, zero. No adventure left in the second official narrative, no story told. A strange form of tri triumph, I agree, since our intelligent naturalist strives to be as dumb as his opponent. His left hand is probably a man trying to withdraw from the world the agency that his right hand has so cleverly multiplied. And yet, I would maintain the striking superiority of a second narrative over the first. If you strip the second from its please no design gloss, the long retinue of actant are still there. I would even say that you may hear them rehearsing backstage before coming to chant the glory of God. While the first narrative, the one you hear so often from the pulpit, once stripped of its own tune, has not added one single new specific voice to the sum of agents. The parson is left with the same choir boys and the same respectable maiden at the organ to play the same song. The lesson we should draw out for this shift in attention is that we should not predict the alliances and draw the front line from the official terms at the top, but from the property of the agencies below. It's not by adding the word soul to an agency, that you will make it do something more, nor is it by calling it inanimate that you will deprive it of its action and of its animation and make it do anything less. Actants are acting. You may try to over-animate them, or on the contrary, attempt to de-animate them. All the same, they will stubbornly remain actant. Anyway, the difference between other and deanimated element is not enough of a cause for which to live, to live, pray, die, fight, 
build temples, shrines, or groves. By now, you must have understood well enough what I'm trying to achieve. There is no meaning in using the expression of natural religion because it's either a redundancy or a badly assembled amalgam. Many orators of his prestigious lectures say I've started from the idea that nature, without square quote, is what anthropologists call an unmarked category, and that the difficulty resided more in the highly contested market category of religion, this one with quotes. The problem for many of those lecturers has been to reconcile the two outlooks by asking nature, by which is almost always meant nature known by natural sciences, to please leave some room for another dimension, the religious, understood either in its spiritual location inside the soul or in its cosmic extension throughout what is often called creation. What made this position of a problem so disappointing was not, as is often said, the difficulty of defining religion, spirituality, creation but the highly implausible and highly unexamined notion of nature. As I've just proposed to show by invoking Owab and Gaiti, if we approach this question in the epistemological mode, there is no great difference between turning to nature, now also a coded category, defined by the four attributes of exteriority, unity, inanimate agencies, and undisputability, or to turning to religion, defined by the same, except the last one about animated agency. It's in that sense that the expression natural religion is fully pleonastic. It has been shown many times by historians, some of them in science studies here, that somewhere between the 17th and the 19th century, there has been a kind of translatio imperi between the two assembling entities. The nature of epistemology having taken all of the other attributes of religion, including its capacity to assemble a specific people devoted to it, while religion, in reaction, has remained, retained the bizarre stance of defining its own entity in the language of epistemology by sticking to the same four attributes, one of them strangely dysfunctional under the name design. The situation and thus the position of a problem shift completely if we address those entities able to assemble their respective people in what I've called, for want of a better form, the anthropological form. So, as far as agency distribution or nomos is concerned, the expression nature does not define what is assembled in practice, nor does the expression religion qualify the sort of people rights and attachment proper to those practices. This is the point, although so far a purely negative one, that I wanted to reach at the end of his first lectures. For those who are assembled by nature, this conclusion should be clear from the four contradictory features I've outlined above. To follow its injunction, one has to burrow deep inside scientific networks to absorb the staggering multiplicity of its agent, to register the long concatenation of its surprising and animated agency, and to swallow ever-expanding controversy 
other multiple matters of concern. It's completely unrealistic, you will have to agree, to confuse the people assembled in the first epistemological mode and in the second anthropological one, even though both would invoke the same entity, nature, call themselves naturalists, and insist on the utter separation from all of the other people assembled by other entities, thanks to the virtue of their sacrosanct reductionism. To sum up in terms that might sound too flippant, let me say that the discussion I will pursue, if we take seriously enough, leads us to define nature in a post-epistemological way, or say that we are moving to a post-natural definition of a problem. The real surprise, as we shall see in the next lecture, is not that the agency distribution made under the auspices of nature is so complex, but that the agency distribution, the nomos, realized under the auspices of religion, captures so little of the features of what is so vitally important for the people this entity is supposed to summon. If you find it puzzling that the invocation of nature does not register any of the real attributes to which its practitioners are so passionately attached, I find it vastly more puzzling that those who are said to be gathered by the entity they often call God captures with such an invocation nothing more than exteriority, unity, and indisputability. Paradoxically, it might be easier to provide a more realistic portrait of the people of nature than to detoxify de those who claim to speak religiously from their attachment to a narrow epistemological rendering of their own vocation. After all, this is what my little field of science studies has done for many decades. It's extremely doubtful that those who claim to be saved by Jesus and to live in his father's creation so as to belong to the same church and be close to those they call their neighbors, would insist on defining those entities for whom they are ready to give their life by the four features of exteriority, universality, other animation, and undisputability. They would probably insist on other features as different from those four ones as those who invoke nature known by natural sciences. Hence, the necessity once again of not being fooled by the amalgam of natural religion, which offers precise indication neither on nature nor on religion. But the other reason why it's so important, and I finish on that, to do away with the very amalgam of natural religion is that we are not faced in the cosmopolitan situation I took and my departure point with only two agency distribution, as could still be the case when David Hume was writing his marvelous dialogues or when Adam Lord Gifford funded his lecture series, but with as many distribution as their entities summoning people today. When naturalists call themselves those out of which we are all born, or when some Christians call themselves out of whom we are all born, there might be fierce dispute between this which and this whom. But what I want us to remain sensitive to is the clamor of those who say, what is this we? What is this all? Don't count us in. We are not part of either of those people. Your entities are not summoning us at all. We are under instances that distribute agency wholly differently, 
Don't unify the situation so prematurely. Please, don't drag us into your world wars. We don't want to play any part in your plots. That's the reason why I chose the word anthropology to define the mode in which we could pursue the conversation. Going beyond number two, setting up a wide enough comparison between mechanism for agency distribution and avoiding the wedge between nature and religion might become crucial resources for discovering the right shape of the earth when the time comes to find a way to participate in the institution or better, the instauration of Gaia. It's clear that its shape would be totally distorted if we had to choose whether it's an entity from religion or from science, whether it's a myth or a natural phenomenon. And nothing would be gained by saying that it's a bit of both, a mythical scientific amalgam, since both nature and religion are already amalgam. Confusion would be added to confusion. No, we need a method to discriminate the various people assembled in the name of various entities. Theos, Logos, Demos. Entities don't like to be addressed in the wrong way by the wrong procedure. People don't like to be summoned by the wrong entity or circumscribed by the wrong nomos. I hope I've indicated clearly enough why such an entity could not be defined by the pleonasm of natural religion. There is no question in that sense that we have become divided nation, often divided among ourselves, inside ourselves, because we are summoned by many different entities to live under very different types of earth. As a first approximation, it's obvious that the people who will be assembled under Gaia will not resemble either those who used to invoke nature, nor those who say that they worship a deity with all the trappings of religion. None of the four main attributes we reviewed so far seem to be part of Gaia. As we shall see later in more detail, she's not outside, but also inside. She's not universal, local. She's neither over-animated nor de-animated. And in addition, no question about it, she is fully controversial. Gaia is most probably another Earth, another globe, invoked by another people, as foreign to what used to be called nature and natural scientists as from what used to be called religion. How to address it, or maybe her, respectfully. This is what we will have to discover. It is not often that we have a Gifford lecture, devote the first Gifford lecture to undermining the premises on which the Gifford lecture series is based. 
but he has done it very eloquently and very well. It's also not often that we have a speaker say some harsh things about David Hume and Adam Lord Gifford in this city of Edinburgh, but we will forgive him. No, I think this has been a superb first lecture, which has called our attention to the multiplicity, the plurality of this thing we call nature, that's defined a major set of difficulties in our thinking about nature, about religion, about the world, and that will, is, has given us a taste of, I'm sure, five more very stimulating lectures to come. Now, Professor Latour has very kindly agreed to receive questions and comments on his lecture, but before we begin with the questions, we might have a short break for two to three minutes for those who might have to get away, who can't stay for the questions, uh, to slip away. Okay, we now have around 10, 15 minutes for questions from the audience. We have a roving cordless microphone that uh, Ms. Hyams has right in the center aisle. So if you have a question or a comment, could you please raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone to come to you. Yes, there we are. Hi, thank you for the great talk. Um, in, I've been reading a bit of Val Plumwood's and kind of looking into um, relatory ethics and, sorry, and assign and and having the belief of giving everything agency. Do you, are you going to go into, or do you think that you can give certain entities different amounts of agency than other, or is it a kind of flat belief? I, I didn't hear the question. I, I didn't hear the question. Oh. Can, can you repeat the question? Could, could you repeat the question? Um, maybe stand up, that might help. Um, I, yeah, I've been looking into, I've been reading a bit of Val Plumwood and kind of eco-feminism. So, oh, okay. Um, like, yeah, ethics of care and like kind of, um, yeah, relatory ethics and uh, kind of giving all non-human entities agency. And as far as I can tell, they haven't really gone into giving certain um, entities more agency than others. They don't really address that issue. Um, is that an issue that you've gone into, and are we going to hear more about that? Or yes, the the, the six lectures are divided by three, so one and two, and the second one. Unfortunately, we'd be on Hume's dialogue, I'm afraid. Is <laughs> uh, <laughs> trying to get this table complete so that we have an idea of where to go, and the two other one on the Gaia and the Anthropocene, we try to get exactly in this question of agency, which is so special, which, um, and have, which I capture with this word geostory, to try to replace this ambiguity of the word Anthropocene, where we could believe it's just a mixture of the former object, so to speak, and the former human agent, but that doesn't work because it's too complex. So, um, and of course, I'm very inspired by uh, a lot of the feminist uh, studies, especially, of course, Haraway. We, we so close from science studies. I will not talk directly about care. I will talk in the two last part of the lecture about war, which is a slightly less nice topic. But unfortunately, my whole argument is that when we deal with ecology 
we don't have a pacifying entity on top of us. So this is my, the subject of the two last lectures, which is about basically war and peace in the time of the Anthropocene. So I will use in the back of my mind a lot of the uh, highways work, uh, and of course a lot of the agency, but I will not talk so much about care, but it's a good idea. I should maybe add, and the last lectures, it's slightly less depressing. The two last ones are pretty depressing, I have to say. <laughs> There's something to look forward to. <laughs> Some more questions, please. Yes. Thank you so much for this very uh, interesting opening lecture. And I'm delighted especially that, that you'll be speaking about a political theology. This is also increasingly my understanding of the task of ecology and religion. That, and this has been a missing dimension in this interdisciplinary dialogue. And of course it's a dialogue which also intersects with science studies. But the, the, the question I want to put to you then is, or at least the possibility, and then maybe again you cover in another lecture, but you referred to Asman and his study of uh, the Hebrews. I, I just want to get your, a sense of your response to this. In the Hebrew Bible, the word covenant is a very strong word you often use for the assembly. And also it's a, a word that use, is used for this distribution of agency. Mm -hmm. And so in, in the covenant that God makes with the people of Israel, there is another member of the covenant that, that often is not commented on, especially by enlightenment and also Catholic commentators. So normally we think covenant of God, Hebrews. But there's a third member, and it's the land. And so this is sometimes spoken of as the cosmic covenant. So this idea of a cosmic covenant indicates that the land is not simply given by the creator, but the land plays a role in the covenant. If the Hebrews live in the right way in the land, if they observe the laws on the basis of which they are given the privilege of the gift of land, then the land will be good to them. But if, on the other hand, they live unjustly, they take too much for themselves, they don't care for the stranger or for the animal, or they don't respect the Sabbath, give rest to the land, the land will eject them. So I just wonder whether that's a helpful way of... Um, I mean, it, suddenly in my own work, that really one of the ways I try to speak about this distribution of agency, which includes not only God, humans, but also Earth, species. Um, yeah, I, I, smack of the subject of the two last lectures, because it's about um, the normative order of the Earth. Yeah. The, uh, uh, in, uh, and I will use a pretty dangerous person here, I mean, one of the inventors of political theology, namely Schmidt. So uh, we will have to be very careful with this question of land, people, and God, but that's what political theory is about. So I will uh, deal with that quite extensively around the notion, trying to reuse another notion 
that the geologists are providing us with, uh, which is this notion of planetary boundaries, and trying to, to make a very bizarre sort of composite figure of the question of planetary boundary with this notion of normative order of the land, which is, of course, one of very, very old definition of law, uh, and, of course, the definition of a covenant. I mean, that's what natural, that's what I like in political theology. I'm sorry I didn't want to say anything wrong about natural religion. <laughs> I just wanted to propose another entry, which was uh, political theology, because nature is too much a political animal to be used and confronted with religion. We need a third part. So it's, it's actually theos, uh, demos, and of course nomos, so the land is there. But we will need to do a bit of work before arriving there. I found it very difficult to write these lectures not knowing if anyone would actually last until the last one. <laughs> so um, if not, uh, my argument will seem to be suspended in mid-air. It's not like writing a book where you think people can go, to be, go through the whole thing. Right? So yes, I, I, but we, we, I would, we'd have discussion about the covenant, of course. Yes, we've got a question in the back. Thank you. Can you, can you see me? Yeah. Thank yes, you so much for the very interesting um, lecture. Um, I was wondering about um, the notion of translation um, uh, from the point of view of anthropology has been heavily criticized. Whether translation is enough to understand different others. And, um, and I wonder whether you have um, uh, taken those critiques into account when you um, refer to the notion of translation and and, and, and you draw these tables of comparisons of concepts and, and whether there's something else. I, I wonder whether the um, you know, notion of translation includes something else apart from words and language and, and all that is uh, included there. I mean, that's a, a good criticism. It's a very primitive and simple-minded way of establishing comparison. I agree. Um, I needed that. I needed a very, very simple version of Durkheim. It's very rare that I cite Durkheim. And um, I, just, just to be able to render comparable the people from nature with the other people. Basically, I had to skip one, one part of a lecture, but I will go back tomorrow on that. Uh, I'm very impressed by the way climatologists are attacked by other scientists who say that they, have, they are lobby. So I think it's the first time that publicly a group of scientists is accused of being lobbied by other scientists. So these people, so they, are, they, have, they have a choice. Either they say, no, 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 we are not a lobby, we are, we are just scientists, which means, as I, you show in the table, people with no, with no specific boundaries, everybody. It, 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 it's not even like the Kirk. I mean, it's really everybody is a scientist. Or they have to accept the fact that they are a people. And the whole lecture series is about that. We're to try to accept the notion of people for scientists engaged into a highly controversial uh, subject about the face of the earth. Because I think climatologists are in a very unusual post-natural and post-epistemological situation for one very simple reason, is that they are the only one really afraid. And all the others are sort of quiet. There's a complete change. I mean, 
people in humanity, philosophy, sociology, business, finance, they say, well, maybe the world will disappear, but we have time. <laughs> now, the ones who are really anxious about every single set of new data they have are the people who are supposed to be the most disinterested, the most emotionless type of people. And that creates a completely, uh, and I, uh, the more I interview them, the more completely interesting and puzzled and tragic figure they are. So it's, my anthropological tool is very simple-minded, I agree, but it's turned to those guys who are not usually understood as belonging to a people. So I'm creating the whole lecture series is an action of demogenesis, so to speak. It's extracting a people who will never consider themselves as a people. So this is why you will forgive me for using a very simple-minded tool of anthropology and say, okay, translation is just enough because normally you are not saying people who are invoking nature are people. But for an anthropology of science, it's necessary to have that very rudimentary tool. I agree. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of bricolage. But all these questions need bricolage because they are so new that we have no sort of common tools to absorb the fact that we live in a geo-historical time. I mean, there is no precedent, so bricolage is necessary. Okay, well, I think maybe we will draw things to a close. We've had a tremendous first Gifford lecture defining uh, the terms Def um, introducing the, the major theme, a political e uh, theology of nature. The image of Gaia is one that will stay with us, also of Oa, but, but images meant to capture the plurality of agency in nature. We look forward to our, the rest of our series. Um, we look forward particularly to the next lecture, a question of agency, which will be presented here in St. Cecilia's Hall tomorrow afternoon at 5.30. Could I invite everyone to a reception in Professor Latour's honor, which will take place in the Lee Room just below us, uh, just after the lecture, and it'll give perhaps an opportunity to meet Professor Latour. So you're all very warmly welcome to the reception. And could you join me once again in thanking Professor Latour for a superb lecture and for his responses to our questions. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.